Shapers on Jazz FM. Listen in color. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. I'm in love with you And all that jazz You're my dream come true And all that jazz Mel Torme with all that jazz and a nice swingy start to Jazz Shapers here with me, Elliot Moss, on a Saturday morning with you. Thank you very much for joining me. This is the place. They call it Jazz Shapers. It's a place where you can hear the very best of the people who are shaping the world of jazz, blues and soul alongside those people who are mixing it up, breaking conventions, creating new rules in the world of business. And we call them business shapers. And I'm very pleased to say my business shaper today is Alistair Stewart. He is the part owner, and we'll talk about what part ownership looks like, um, of etc. Venues. He's also the managing director. They're a £40 million business, or they will be by December of this year. Um, and he bought into the business about eight years ago and you're going to be hearing what that looks like um, as we talk to him in addition to talking to Alistair we'll be talking to our programme partners at Mishkon Dorea some words of advice for your business and you're going to get some great music as well of course from the shapers of jazz, blues and soul Ella Fitzgerald, Eric Bibb and also right now it's Robert Glasper Robert Glasper with Reckoner, and for those of you that have recognised that, it is actually a Radiohead cover, and interesting it is too. Alistair Stewart's my business shaper. As I said, he's now in charge and partly owns a £40 million business. Um, It's called Etc. Venues. And um, welcome. Slightly different Mr. Um, Shaper today, or Mrs. Shaper, but you're a Mr. You bought this business back in 2006, where were things at, at that point in your life? What led you to the path of becoming a part owner? And I know we're going to talk about how you raise the money and things. A part owner in a business, obviously, in, in a world that you knew, which is, which is events. But what made you say, I don't want to work for someone else in quite the same way anymore? Well, it was a decision that was forced on me because um, at the age of 46 and after having worked for the same business for over 20 years, um, uh, which was part of a PLC the business was sold, not by my choice, but by the choice of the, the PLC. And the new owners of the business decided that um, I was not going to form part of the of the future. So I found myself um, suddenly out of work for the first time out of 20 years at quite short notice. And therefore, uh, it was, a, it was a, in my view, it was a short list of choices to what I did next. But I'd had the taste of selling a business. The business was incredibly well sold, got $325 million for it. I'd met a whole lot of people in private equity and investment. I'd got the taste for uh, owning some of the other business as well as being an employee of the business. And um, it, the opportunity to acquire etc. venues w- was there. And that's what I went for and, and took. Now, Alistair, I mean, many people in that position, age 46, 20 years working for the same company, would not have opted for the route that you took. They may have had a couple of years where they, quote unquote, thought about stuff. They may have never recovered from that knock unusual that you didn't just do something pretty good you do something fantastic where do you think you got that attitude from that tenacity and that sense of you know what this is the beginning of something else rather than oh 
what am I going to do next? Well, I mean, even though I, I saw it, a possibility of it happening, it was still a very brutal shock at the time. And um, I sort of initially agreed with my wife that I'd take six months off. You know, as as you do, there was a, a good payment, a good settlement. There were no immediate short-term financial worries, but I just couldn't settle. Um, I was unhappy. I couldn't sleep. I was worried about uh, you know the the future, kids in you know kids in schools and liabilities. And even though, as I say, none of the pressures were immediately short term, um, I just couldn't settle. And in fact, uh, I remember my wife saying to me, you know, after about uh, six weeks, this isn't working. You need to go out and and, and sort yourself out. And and Etcetera Venues was a business that I'd gotten to know. It was a, a much smaller business in our sector. I knew the people well. I uh, had a cup of tea with the chairman and said, look, um, how about, um, you know, we revisit some of the ideas we had uh, when I was with my old business, but except this occasion, I'll, you know, I'd look at it personally. And, you know, she thought it was a good idea. And, um, you know, over a cup of tea, we agreed a price uh, and she gave me 10 weeks uh, to get the deal done. Um, it happened to coincide with the the founder's 50th birthday and she wanted to leave on her 50th birthday, the most ridiculous and artificial of timetables, but that's what it was. And that's how it happened. You see, sometimes the stories come together in all sorts of extraordinary ways. Lots coming up from my business shaper today, Alistair Stewart. Time for some music right now. This is Ella Fitzgerald and I've Got You Under My Skin. <laughs> The mellifluous sound of Ella Fitzgerald with I've Got You Under My Skin. Alice Stewart's my business shaper. 46 years old, as he was telling us earlier, 20 years in a company. It all came to an abrupt end. Six weeks into, quote-unquote, part-time retirement before he moved on to the next thing, his wife said, enough. And 10 weeks after that, after a cup of tea with the chairman, he ends up, as you were saying, having the opportunity to raise enough money and buy a company called Etcetera Venues. And you pulled it off. Well, yes. How long did it take, in fact? It took um, about 11 and a half weeks. You were late, um, Alistair. It started in a bad way. But, I mean, 11 and a half weeks to raise how much money did you have to raise? Um, for that deal, we raised £21 million. And I think the challenge initially was that um, the previous uh, deal that we were working on was £320 million, and therefore all the, all the equity partners were at a, at, a, at a level well above what I needed. So I was lucky. A couple of people I'd met through the course of the deal... Uh, I rang up and said, um, can you introduce me to someone who will back this sort of deal? Uh, One of them was Malcolm Offord at Charterhouse, who's a very big figure, and Gavin Simmons, who uh, is a well-known figure in the the business world and had a hotel background. And unbeknown to me, both of them introduced me independently to Dunedin Capital Partners and, you know, clearly said something that made Dunedin meet me quickly. And within a week of meeting them, I said, yep, we like you, we like the company, we like the target, we like the story, we'll back it. And we got into detailed talks very quickly. The the nine weeks is just because you have to do your due diligence. And the tricky bit of it was that it had to be a management buy-in, buy-out, and that is known as a bimbo. And the founder's terms to me were simple. It's you on your own. You have to work with my team. You step into my shoes as the MD, 
um, but I want you to work alongside you know, my fellow directors and I want the opportunity uh, of, of this transaction to be as good for them as, as it is for you. So I had to really, having worked with a, a, an established team that I'd gotten to know over over many years, suddenly meet a new team and persuade the the bank and the and the private equity investor to back us in a buy-in. And you know, for many of your listeners, they'll know that buy-ins are much more difficult to pull off than buyouts. You sound incredibly um, calm about the whole thing, and obviously, time is you know is nine years on. But I I get the sense that at that time you were probably calm too. Allying that with an entrepreneurial spirit, which obviously you have, not an easy gig, and and the skills that you need to grow the business are not necessarily the skills that you need to raise capital. How have you squared that circle? How do you manage to kind of have both a head for the for the investment as well as a head for actually growing the business? Well, I think I was lucky enough to have spent a year selling the old business, and once you spend a year doing that, you get to know the language that investors like. You you, you get to know the things to say, but more importantly, the things not to say. What shouldn't you say? Give me one little snippet. Come on. Well, I think we want to know. You you know, you've got to never reveal your anxieties uh, to them. They just want to hear the good news. They want to understand that you understand risk, but above all. You've got to be opportunistic. You've got to be bullish. Your numbers have got to add up. So it's important that your financial models are correct. And I think if you want to do something quickly, you need to keep it simple. Lots of brilliant advice um, already, but you're going to get some more with my business shaper. That's Alistair Stewart. Latest travel in a couple of minutes first. And before that, some words of wisdom for your business from our program partners at Mishkondare. Hello, my name is Derville Walsh. I'm a partner in the contentious banking and finance practice at Mishcon Dorea. I specialise in banking disputes, predominantly working for borrowers or customers who have issues with their banks or difficulties with their banks. Two practical tips I would give to all customers who engage with their banks are one, firstly, when starting a relationship with a bank, uh, particularly when securing funding, it's absolutely critical for borrowers to get professional help, whether it's from accountants or lawyers, to ensure that the terms of any lending are not very, very disadvantageous from the borrower's perspective and advantageous from the perspective of the bank. A second tip I would give to all customers or borrowers dealing with banks is to take notes of all sorts of communications or any engagement with the bank. In some cases, people have good relationships with their relationship manager and it can be relatively informal. So a lot can be done on the phone. In any situation where the bank gives an undertaking or makes a promise and that is communicated by a relationship manager over the phone, that should be documented by the borrower slash customer so that if there is a situation in the future where there is a dispute about that, that record can be produced and it can remove all doubt as to what was or wasn't agreed. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. This is Jazz Shapers, and I'm Elliot Moss. Every Saturday, I'm talking to someone who I think is interesting, and I think you will also think is interesting. They're called business shapers, and they sit here, and they tell me all sorts of things that they maybe hadn't told people before. If you um, have missed any of those programs, you go onto iTunes, put in the words Jazz and Shapers, you'll find them there. Or if you fancy cityam.com, if a computer is near you, and it probably is, you can find a whole host of people who are listed over there as well. Alistair Stewart's my business shaper today. He's the um, part owner, I use the words carefully, and managing director of uh, uh, etc. venues. They're a £40 million business. And we've been talking about the bit before you got 
the business and the bit of raising the money. And then, as you said, um, there's a it's, it was called a bimbo, a buy-in, and a buy-out. Now, for, for I'm not sure I would know necessarily in detail what a buy-in is. Explain very briefly what it is, and then explain why it wasn't so easy for you to pull it off. Well, the buy-in bit is is was me as the managing director doing what they call a management buy-in. So I arrive, buy a shareholding in the business, and under a private equity structure, the private equity um, give the management a stake in the business, and the proportion gets split between the buy-in candidate, i.e. me, and the buy-out directors. So, you know, we ended up with about, uh, it was a minority stake, it was about 45% of the business, and that got split up between the directors. And then why was it difficult, Alistair? Well, I mean, I think the, the, the hardest thing to do is to put a, an ambitious business plan that you have to do, otherwise you don't get the capital, into a team of people that had run a very successful little business but had gone quite slowly and had had a lot of time and no debt to worry about. And I think the pressure of an ambitious business plan and a lot of debt was too much for some of them. And those people, I imagine... Left. Well, the key the key problem was the finance director who resigned after three weeks. And I mean, I remember well in about three weeks in, we were sitting one evening. And she said, "Look, this isn't working for me." So I said, "Well, what's the problem?" And she said three things to me. She said, "You're a man. You're too old." And I'm not sure I trust you. And um, but apart from that, we're going to get on really well. <laughs> you can't go very yeah, well. I said, not... "Well, look, I'm not. I'm not planning to have a sex change. And I, unless you've got something that can reverse my age, I mean, I don't think there's anything to do that. And I think it was unusual. The company was was all female. Um, the chairman was a female. The managing director was female. And it was that was unusual. And you know, I think at the time, probably I arrived. It was probably a bit more of an alpha male. Um, pushing and saying we've got to do this, we've got to do it quicker, and I think it was difficult for them. But to some extent, I wasn't willing to compromise what I believe needed to be done, and I think it did cause a bit of conflict. Now, obviously, you said you know I wasn't willing to compromise what needed to be done. Your the numbers have worked. Whatever you said you were going to do in that plan, I'm imagining you have delivered. Is that a fair thing to say? Has it, has it worked completely or have there been, I mean, I don't know, what, what was the turnover at the time that you bought the business? Uh, the turnover when, when I arrived was just about 9 million and they're making um, about 1.9 million of EBITDA. So, I mean, yes, the numbers on the scoreboard look very good. And I think... Um, and what other metrics do you look at? Because you've been now in business running this yourself for the last eight years. So your your obviously your revenue we just talked about earlier has uh, all quadrupled. Margin has quadrupled with it, or not quite? No, the margin um, uh, the margin has 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 been pretty steady. I mean, it was a good business with a good margin. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think we've grown EBITDA to ten point six, uh, which is what we did to June fifteen, which is our financial year end. So to go from one point nine to ten point six, I think is pretty good by most people's standards. And when you consider that in- included through a period of quite a heavy recession. I think um, some people regard that as um, as almost exceptional, and certainly for our sector, it's it's good because a lot of businesses had quite a lot of trouble during the recession. Stay with me to find out how Alistair has bucked that particular trend in the events business. Time for some music. This is Eric Bibb with Silver Spoon. <laughs> As a young man, still a boy, truth be told. Silver Spoon from Eric Bibb. Nice and relaxing for you, I hope. Alistair Stewart's with me. And Alistair, we've been talking about this events business, which has grown quite nicely. 
Obviously, the numbers are critical, and we've talked about those doing rather well. What are the other things that are important to you personally as you think about whether you, at the end of the day, have had a good day or not a good day, or at the end of the year had a good year or not a good year? How have the team measured up? Is there happiness in the business? Are, are customers happy? You know, What are the other things around it that you go, I'm really enjoying myself, or inversely, I'm not? Well, we are a completely customer-centric business, and I'm sure that's common to, to a lot of the businesses that, that, that your program covers. So that is at the very heart of it. I think in terms of sort of sticking with the private equity thread, then a lot of people ask me about private equity and you know what is the criteria for success and failure. There are a lot of different views about uh, private equity out there. So I think you know for me, we've got to, got to grow the business by at least 15% top and bottom line every year to keep that story going. Um, as far as it working for private equity and you know the next round of investment when it comes, that's a sort of track record you need to be putting on the table, you know, to raise to raise the next level of investment. Now that's critical, and I get that. And there is, and you're right. People talk about whether you should or you shouldn't, and we'll come come to that in a bit. But I'm interested in your emotional connection to the business beyond the fact that you have to deliver the numbers. Is there one, or is it much more of look? I'm running a business, and I need to deliver the numbers. Or there other things that that fill you with joy so much that you jump up and go, yes. Well, look, this is a tough one because I absolutely love the conference centre industry, but to most people, it can at surface appear a bit dull. But I mean, a lot of people who are listening will be going to meetings and training courses and conferences, and they will know that in some venues it's a good experience, and in some venues it's not a good experience. I don't get involved in the content, that's for our clients to deliver. But what I can do is ensure that the venue they go to adds to the event, whether it's just a great cup of coffee or a particularly good lunch, or that the air conditioning works or that the comfort of the chair they're sitting in is right. These are the small details that we spend a lot of time trying to get right so that we can deliver an enjoyable conference venue experience as hosts. Well, that makes perfect sense. Final chat coming up with Alistair today. Plus, we'll be playing a track from Cyril Aimé. That's after the latest traffic and travel here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. When the world is on your shoulder Gotta straighten up your act and boogie down If you can't hang with the feeling Then there ain't no room for you this part of town Cause we're the party people night and day Living crazy, that's the only way So tonight Cyril Aimé with a really interesting take on Michael Jackson's original Off the Wall. Um, I'm with you, Alistair, just for a few more minutes, so I better make them good. You've talked about private equity. You have obviously built your ability to, to, to be part of this business on private equity. And there are people, and I've had one on this program who you know called Lara Morgan, who would say, never sell any last percentage of your business ever. Sell your grandma before you do that. You're in a different camp. It's work for you. What are the watchouts to ensure that it works for other people contemplating private equity backing? Well, it's a good question. I think I think I had the benefit of a of a corporate background where I, where I understood that you know you need to report figures to people, you need to you know run your business in a professional and to some extent standardised way, and therefore in terms of 
the difference between reporting to, say, a PLC and reporting to private equity, there's not a lot of difference. I think some of the entrepreneurs I meet who uh, have to adjust from running their own businesses, sometimes without necessarily very vigorous or rigorous financial controls, sometimes they don't have finance directors, and it can be a bit of an adjustment when they meet uh, professional investors who expect a certain standard of um, of, of, of control. I think if you then couple that with someone who has never been told how to run their business or has never had people challenging them in a way that you know you would expect professional investors to do, it can lead to a clash. And I think in that sense, it can be done. Um, uh, but I, the criteria I say is, is three. One, you've got to be able to grow your business, as I said earlier, by at least 15% a year. You yourself have got to be able to share uh, your business with others and that means occasionally listening. It occasionally means doing something necessary that you think is 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 not necessarily the right thing to do. And you've got to be prepared to bring into your team people sometimes of a higher calibre who private equity investors will expect, particularly the finance directors. So I think really it comes down to culture. The fact that your background enabled you to see where private equity fitted suited you just fine because you were used to that environment. But someone who was a maverick who had only ever worked for themselves ever, ever, ever would find it very difficult to have a whole new set of bosses with a whole new set of rigour around it. That's kind of It feels like it's not right or wrong. It's really about where you as an individual have come from. On that point, um, I think you, you know we've said that you're a the, not the founder of the business, but now you're running and it's your baby uh, along with your your PE um, friends. Do you do you ever think of yourself as that entrepreneur? Do you do you, maybe people say, "Are oh, you entrepreneurial?" Do you say, "Well, of course I am." I mean, what's your what's your take on that for yourself? I don't call myself an entrepreneur. I, I I've got huge admiration for those people who start up businesses and take, in some cases, huge risks. You know, I know there's there's the great sort of T-shirt of failure they all love to wear. That 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 is not my story. My story is that, you know, I wanted to get it right from day one. We think very very carefully about every decision we make. We don't make mistakes. That doesn't mean to say we don't take risks. Yes, we do, but we take very calculated risks. And for the people that are with me on this journey, you know, I don't want to turn around to them and say, "Sorry, guys, we failed. Let's start again." They, I, at starting at forty six, there was no second chance. And, you know, for my entrepreneur friends, I sometimes say, was that mistake actually avoidable? I know you wear the badge of failure with great honour, but for me, it's not a badge I want to wear. I wanted to get it right first time. That's brilliant. Really good to hear a different take on making a business super successful. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for being my business shape. You've been great. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? So I've um, I've chosen a, a track called La Manja from The Absence by a fantastic singer called Melody Gardo. And any reason why this one particular? It's a lot of my background was was in South Africa. My grandmother, who started a hotel out there, and it's what brought me into the industry. She was a great influence in my life. And then Melody, if you research, uh, has some African influence in this. It's also apparently partly written in Marrakesh, where I was recently had an incredible stay, and it is an incredible place. And I love the track. Here it is, just for you. Thank you so much. Lady gone to the southern sea, why do you appear so suddenly? We want 
That was Lamanja by Melody Gardot, the song choice of my business shaper today, Alistair Stewart. The corporate man turned entrepreneur, though he wouldn't use the phrase entrepreneur, but he is running and growing a business which he is partly an owner of. Someone who understands what private equity as an investor will require, and he understood exactly how to deliver them the details that were important to them. And finally, someone who would say on his T-shirt, we don't make mistakes rather than we are proud to have failed. An interesting take on the world of developing a business. Great stuff. Join me again, same time, same place, next Saturday, 9am, for another edition of Jazz Shapers. Meantime, stay with us. Coming up next, it's Nigel Williams. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mish Rea. It's business, but it's personal.